0: I'm Patrick O'Meara, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, writers, and political figures, and we try to get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is Ambassador Faisal Istrabadi. Faisal, welcome to Profiles. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I would like to talk a little bit about your connections with Indiana University before we go into a more substantive discussion. You attended IU.
1: I did. I sort of uh, grew up in Bloomington more than anywhere else, and uh, I have uh, an undergraduate degree from here, and my first law degree is from what is now the Maurer School of Law. I have an undergraduate degree in uh, chemistry, and my JD is from IU as well, yes. My high school degree, for that matter, is from uh, Bloomington. Bloomington South, yes.
0: And your wife has connections with IU. She does. Uh, Juliet.
1: Uh, Juliet was born in Bloomington. Her father has his Ph.D. from here. And although she grew up at uh, Syracuse, where my father-in-law teaches, uh, she is truly a native Bloomingtonian.
0: And she's actually working in the museum part-time, I gather. Uh, with that's the... right.
1: She's acting curator of the ancient collection in, uh, at the IU Art Museum.
0: And your mother and father also had connections? Your mother had connections?
1: Uh, Yes. My father was city engineer here in the city of Bloomington uh, when my mother was a student. She did her Ph.D. here. uh, I think she finished in 1978. My sister has all three of her degrees from here, her uh, B.A., M.A. and Ph.D. And, of course, she also teaches uh, at Indiana University now. So the, uh, the roots are, are deep. Uh, what's, what's the total number of degrees? I think we have nine degrees and my wife is working on the 10th. The 10th. So. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> now tell me, you, you're teaching at the law school
0: and you're doing some interesting courses on transi- transitional justice in Iraq and you're also interested in other things. And you're also director of the recently funded Title VI Center for
1: the Middle East. That's right. Uh, The tradition of Middle East studies uh, on this campus dates back to uh, a very long time ago, but uh, we sort of refounded a center for the study of the Middle East. And for the first time, uh, we have uh, uh, Title VI funding from the U.S. Department of Education. We're a so-called National Resource Center, which is a very prestigious designation shared by, I think, uh, six or seven other uh, centers here on campus. But we're the newest uh, national resource center uh, on the Bloomington campus.
0: You're also continuing as a foreign ministry ambassador. Technically, Technically,
1: yes. I'm on leave from the Iraqi foreign ministry. That's right.
0: And that leads us into talking about what's been going on in North Africa, in the Middle East. It's been an exciting several months.
1: It has been, uh, and I have to say no one, I think, saw it coming. Um, uh, After the fact, one or two people sort of claimed that they knew it was going to happen all along, but nobody actually predicted it ahead of time. Uh, I think, is it Cassius who says there's a a tide in the affairs of man, and I think that uh, there was a a certain tide that uh, the Middle East had resisted, Mm -hmm. Uh, the Arab countries had resisted in terms of democratization, which had occurred in a number of other places around the world, Latin America, Eastern Europe, and so on. Uh, and I think that the tide simply became uh, irresistible at a, at a unique moment in history. Uh, um, and it has been extremely exciting uh, to watch. There are dangers, of course. We don't know what direction uh, we're headed in, at least for the short term. Uh, but it is a positive development that at last, uh, at long last, people are demanding their rights and that uh, long standing tyrannical regimes are falling one after the other.
0: Maybe we could weave on a a journey, as it were, starting with Tunisia in January of 2011 and then coming to Syria, where we are now, which is the big issue at the moment. Let's talk about Tunisia first.
1: Um, Was that expected in your mind? Not at all. And in fact, I mean, the incident that sort of sparked it all was uh, almost, I mean, I'm sorry, I don't know, I I don't mean to be disrespectful, but almost silly. I mean, a, a single... A sort of um, street peddler was abused by one policeman, and uh, he could not stand it anymore. And uh, I think he self-immolated, if I recall correctly. Uh, In any event, he uh, killed himself, and that act sparked the demonstrations uh, which uh, started in Tunisia. That led v- relatively very quickly, within a matter of days, uh, to um, the then president who had been in power for you know decades uh, in the middle of the night sort of getting on an airplane and finding asylum for himself in uh, Saudi Arabia. And all of a sudden that opened up the possibilities for other uh, states in the region, for other peoples in the region. Uh, but again, in retrospect, I mean, it was not some grand personage. It was not some uh, uh, homily preached in a mosque. It was uh, just one man saying he'd had enough and responding in, in, in an extreme way, but perhaps the only way he knew how. Uh, and that got his fellow citizens to say enough. It was, uh, it was a remarkable thing to see unfold, actually. Was it time for change? Absolutely. Um, there has been a growing literature, uh, scholarly literature, on, on why it is that uh, the Arab states seem to be resistant to uh, sort of the, the democratic uh, uh, waves, as the scholars like to say, that have occurred. Uh, I think we're now in our fourth wave, as they have it. There were all sorts of explanations, all of which have to be rewritten now. There were uh, just as at one point uh, uh, scholars were convinced that the fact that uh, Latin America was predominantly Catholic, for instance, had something to do with the fact that uh, democracy was not uh, efflorescing there, there were all sorts of explanations for why Islam could not lead to democracy and so on. But it really was time, and I, I and I think that all of those explanations rang hollow at the time. But as recently as the end of last year, books were still being published with Titles uh, to the effect of you know why democracy hasn't taken root in the Arab countries. Then in February or, or late December, uh, February it started in Libya, of course, but in Tunisia it was December, I think, early December. Mm-hmm. It was early. Um, and um, and there we are. We've been off uh, off and running ever since. Mm-hmm. I think the demonstrations may have begun. I thought in and December. And then the, the removal. Yeah. That's right. And then he left. I in, think yeah. in in, uh, in in January. Uh, in January. Uh, and then the, you had the demonstrations in Egypt as well, and then, of course, in Libya, and then other places, Bahrain and uh, Syria. But
0: Morocco is relatively stable in the face of all of this change. Do you know why? It,
1: it, well, it seems, it seems, at least from an outsider's uh, perspective, that um, as soon as the events unfolded in Tunisia, that the Moroccan king sort of called in the political class in Morocco and essentially said here's the constitution you can have it make whatever changes you think need to be made whether the story is really that simple or not remains to be seen i am hearing that there may be some sort of attempts in the palace in the circle around the king to try to uh, rein in some of the reforms but the political class at least the the, the politicians outside the palace uh, seem to be determined to make the reforms that are being demanded on the street uh, and if those changes are made, then I think that uh, the the Moroccan king has a very high probability of surviving its It's hard to use the word stability because I mean the one thing these dictators manage to do is to bring stability of a fashion exactly. so stability in and of itself is not a is not a, uh, a a thing that's by itself to be desired, although on the other hand it beats it's better than chaos of course but if you can have uh, a uh, genuine reform process, while maintaining stability. Obviously, that, of course, is the ideal.
0: The king's father, King Hassan, yes, was not what you would call a reforming king. So,
1: no, indeed, uh, Hassan the Second was. Um, well, he was an autocrat. In fact, yes. uh, and very early, I have to say, in the sixth reign, the current king, um, he did begin to open up the system. He, Mm -hmm. for instance, uh, uh, engendered a kind of a a truth commission uh, for Morocco that actually looked into the excesses of his father's time. Compensation was offered, in fact, for uh, some of the victims uh, of of his father's, uh, I don't want to call it regime, but reign perhaps. So I I would say that the process in Morocco uh, has been an organic one that has been uh, partly led by by the crown or at least that the crown started the process of some of the reforms which i think have accelerated in light of what's been happening in neighboring states as i said if the king allows these processes to uh, continue in morocco and doesn't interfere or doesn't allow the circle around him to interfere to short circuit them i think there's a there's a very good chance in that event that uh, that a constitutional monarchy in morocco will survive
0: I know it's a bit of a cliché to talk about the domino effect, but we start with Tunisia. Is it a domino effect? I mean, we move ultimately from Tunisia to Egypt, to Libya, to Syria, to Yemen. Was it caused by that initial spark by one person in Tunis, or are there other causes as as an analyst?
1: that you would like to talk about? I think what happened in Tunisia made it seem possible in the other countries. But I, I don't think it can be viewed in terms of cause and effect. If there were not internal dissatisfactions, internal uh, uh, grounds for dissent, then the mere fact that these things were occurring in another country, even a neighboring country, need not have resulted in in them occurring in in Egypt in other places, I think the fact that they succeeded in Tunisia with 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 almost no violence to speak of, almost zero violence, made it seem possible that regimes of long standing could in fact uh, collapse. Uh, but I mean, you have to look at Egypt. Uh, Egypt had a coup d'état in 1952, and had had a succession of officers, whether they wore a military uniform or not. Uh, there was a succession of officers, uh, starting with general Najib to Colonel Nasser to Anwar Sadat to Hosni uh, Mubarak, who was i think uh, i think his title is air chief marshal or something like that anyway highest ranking officer in the in the Egyptian air Force. So you had four military officers over from 1952 to 2011. I mean, that's a hell of a long time for a single regime to survive. Uh, Not a single election worthy of the name over that period of time and truly military rule over that period of time. Similarly, in Libya, you had the reign of a single man for 42 years uh, from 1969, uh, a man who sort of remade the entire country in his own image, without allowing any political dissent uh, to survive. Uh, and similarly in in Syria, which sort of uh, formalized the concept of the hereditary republic, that regime has been in power something like since 1969 or 1970 also. And you had a uh, son succeeding his father, which was also probably going to be the case in Libya. And uh, the regime had certainly planned on and the same occurring that son would succeed father in Egypt, and I, I think people uh, had had enough. Uh, this is the information age, and and people know what's happening in the outside world. It's very very difficult to keep uh, to keep uh, sort of a lid on things. Um, so I think each country had its own dynamic, but what Tunisia made it again clear is that it was possible, uh, and in that sense, I think it uh, it helped to provide that sort of last spark to allow people to to go into the streets and to demand change.
0: And Egypt was quite remarkable. When you think about President Mubarak and the idea of the dynasty, of his son succeeding him, and then suddenly we see large hundreds of thousands of people gathering in Cairo. That's right. In one square, animated by probably Twitter. Facebook
1: and word of mouth that 's right, and um, it was truly remarkable, as is the fact that he ultimately Mubarak stepped down but stayed in the country now I mean whatever else that I think speaks to to something uh, maybe it 's it's, it's self delusion, and he certainly, as all of these dictators become after so many decades um, in power, they do become self delusional. Uh, I mean, his last speech to the country when when Mubarak was trying to sort of stem the tide, he was speaking uh, to his children in the the country, and long past, as they say, the sell-by date of that concept, uh, but completely out of touch. Uh, But nonetheless, he didn't uh, abscond with billions, whatever maybe squirreled away is another story, but he didn't abscond to Saudi Arabia or elsewhere. And in contrast to Qadhafi, Mubarak could certainly have – found uh, asylum in the Arab world, in Saudi Arabia, or elsewhere in the Gulf. Uh, but he didn't. He stayed, and I think that's to his credit. But there is a disconnection from reality, in fact, when you get to the point that uh, it is uh, uh, only you can rule. And uh, the great uh, Egyptian uh, uh, advocate for reform, who was also a colleague here as a visiting professor at Indiana University, Saad din Ibrahim, always used to make the point that uh, Hosni Mubarak has ruled Egypt longer than anybody since Ramses II. I'm not sure that's strictly true, but uh, it, it, it makes a point. Uh, and
0: Professor Ibrahim had actually been a victim of Mubarak. He had
1: indeed. He had uh, been um, imprisoned for a number of years and uh, was only set free when the United States Congress intervened to cut off something like $100 million or more in uh, USA to Egypt. And then all of a sudden the Egyptian... Uh, Court of Cassation, it's the equivalent of a Supreme Court, um, found legal grounds to uh, – coincidentally at that moment to, to uh, reverse his conviction. But he had uh, suffered in fact yeah. uh, in in prison and uh, had been uh, partly incapacitated in fact the, physically. The big questions
0: with Egypt – there may be three big questions. One is the relationship with Israel. The second is what is going to happen to the Christian minority – And is there going to be some very new fundamentalist presence in Egypt? And then the third is the crisis of expectations. Are these people who are on a really major democratic movement ready to accept reality?
1: Well, I mean, you're asking a series of superb questions, which are in fact the questions that that have to be answered. Uh, let me start, uh, sort of, with, with with the last one. One of I th- one of the problems certainly uh, that we saw in Iraq, also a tyrannical regime was removed. Obviously, very very diff- in a very different way. The concept of democracy, which emerged, uh, was one of a majoritarian. Uh, democracy, not of a sort of constitutional democracy, not of a democracy uh, that limits the rights of the uh, majority. Quite the contrary. Uh, there is a danger of uh, of that emerging in Egypt and in other states. Uh, again, it is in part uh, because of these uh, stultifyingly rigid regimes which have been uh, replaced now uh, that The conversation about what it means to be a democracy in the modern world uh, has not been occurring uh, in the Arab world uh, as it might have. So that again, the understanding of what a democracy is, is uh, very, very differently from what we uh, expect it to be. Concomitant with that issue, of course, is the issue of um, the expectation that by having a democracy, all problems will be solved. And, of course, we know that's certainly not the case. And, in fact, if anything, it becomes harder to uh, resolve uh, uh, all manner of issues if the decision-making is not constricted to one man or to a a small circle of men. And in in general, in the the Middle East, it has been uh, men uh, uh, as a matter of historic fact. Uh, so, th- so this is certainly a problem and that can lead to the disenfranchise, uh, to, to a sense of uh, disenfranchisement, in fact, or, or disenchantment, at least, uh, from uh, democracy. The other issue is what is going to be the role of the uh, religious parties in each of these countries, and that uh, obviously remains to be seen. The only place we have uh, any data uh, happens to be in, in Tunisia, which has already had its uh, first elections where the religious parties did well and uh, obtained a plurality, but not a majority. So at least that is uh, positive in the sense that to the extent that there is still a very live expectation um, that these parties uh, will abide by democratic principles, they will have to uh, ameliorate some of their more... Uh, strident uh, or radical uh, members' uh, views and to compromise with, uh, with at least a coalition partner. Hopefully, uh, they will not repeat the mistakes of Iraq in which a bare majority imposed a new constitutional order, uh, but rather, uh, hopefully, uh, they will understand that to have a viable constitutional order, they have to have um, broad uh, buy-in across the spectrum Uh, And so that uh, my hope is that in Tunisia, they will not uh, simply make, uh, you know, a 50 percent plus one bargain Mm -hmm. in their constitutional deliberations. But at least it's good that they're going to have to make some compromises in order to reach a majority or a supermajority. In uh, Egypt, uh, I expect that the religious parties will probably do very well. You know, the religious parties are very difficult to suppress uh, because it's much easier to close down. The uh, Communist Party headquarters, let's say, than it is to close down all the mosques in the country and so obviously religious parties can organize in the mosques in Libya uh, it's hard to gauge. Uh, I do again expect the religious parties to do well. how well uh, remains to be seen the transitional national council is mostly made up of secular individuals, uh, but there's clearly a, lar- a a well a substantial uh, religious element there as well, but of course it remains to be seen how powerful they will be.
0: We'll come back to Israel. This is a good moment for us to take a little break, and as is the the custom with profiles, you should choose some music, and I think you've chosen Smetana.
1: I have. Uh, this is uh, from the uh, Bartered uh, Bride, and um, uh, I think the the reason I chose this is it has a particular personal meaning for me because uh, my, my wife happens to be half Slovak. And uh, my uh, mother-in-law, who, who is uh, an immigrant, uh, I mean, she herself is an immigrant to the United States, had asked, we had a string quartet play at our wedding, and she had asked that the first piece uh, be this uh, selection from the bartered bride. And so uh, I, I always think to the day of, uh, that I was married when, uh, when, whenever I hear the tune. Thank you.
0: this is profiles and i've been speaking with ambassador faisal istrabadi
2: production support for profiles comes from smithville a locally owned business serving central and southern indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet voice and security services smithville local pride global technology information at smithville.net
0: faisal let's continue our discussion if we may uh, we've been talking about egypt and the great changes that have taken place with the transition from President Mubarak to a new order that is still navigating and yes. is probably still trying to work out a constitutional framework and its foreign policy. How do you think Egypt will now respond to Israel? Because that's one of the big issues.
1: It is one of the, one of the large issues uh, regionally and uh, internationally – I think to some extent uh, that will depend a little bit on the Israeli government itself. And unfortunately, it seems that uh, this is not a moment when the parties are prepared to, uh, to, make, a of the, uh, to make peace with respect to the remaining issues, uh, principally the, the, the Palestinian issue and then uh, with Syria. Of course, Syria has its own problems right now and is not uh, likely to be able to engage in, 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 a, in a peace process now. It's very clear that Israel is not a popular state uh, amongst the broad masses of Egyptians. But that's a very different thing from saying that the, that the Egyptians want to put themselves on a war footing again uh, with Israel. Um, I think that um, optimistically uh, one would say that uh, this is a moment for Egypt to rebuild itself – and to concentrate on, uh, on its own economic and political institutions um, and to uh, reassert sort of uh, a reform agenda or assert a reform agenda uh, for itself. If that's the case, being uh, then sort of rescinding uh, the, the treaty with Israel is not likely to be on the agenda. Uh, the, ram- the international ramifications for Egypt doing so are too great. Uh, to contemplate uh, from the Egyptian uh, perspective. So I don't expect that to happen. While I can readily admit that it it is possible, but I don't expect it to happen. I think that uh, there has been, as as commentators say, a cold peace between Egypt and uh, Israel. It may get a little bit colder, uh, but it'll remain uh, peaceful, I expect. It would help if the Israeli government were a little more inclined to engage seriously uh, with the Palestinians on, uh, on a settlement of the issues outstanding between, between those two parties. A reporter on the English Al Jazeera network once said uh, that uh, uh, the uh, Palestinians uh, uh, want a result without talks and the Israelis want talks without a result. Mm-hmm. Uh, If we could bridge that somehow and resolve those issues, I think one of the stimuli, uh, one of the negative stimuli in Egypt and elsewhere in the Arab world would be removed. After all, if the Palestinians can and the Israelis can truly make a a historic breakthrough in a settlement, it's much more difficult for other Arab states or politicians in the Arab world to argue for a – uh, you know, non-normalization of relations with Israel if the Palestinians have normalized relations. So that, that would be a, a, a hopeful sign. But I don't think that the peace treaty with Israel and, and the rescission of a peace treaty with Israel is high on anybody's list in Egypt right now.
0: I used to think that many of these great conflicts were chronic. But over the years, I've watched change, certainly Northern Ireland and, of course, South Africa. Well, I was, these were un, une, unexpected... Transitions, And I wonder if we might even be moving in this Israeli-Palestinian situation, if well, not in the immediate future, towards some kind of resolution.
1: Well, one hopes so because uh, the – and again, I, when, as, you, as you were asking your question before you, uh, you, before you said South Africa, which I, I think mm. is your, your, uh, right. your native land, uh, I was thinking of that in fact and how quickly it seemed to occur uh, at, a, at a discrete moment in history, the change. Uh, I mean, I'm a a believer in the power of elites, both for good and for bad. Unfortunately, I I, I must say, uh, looking at the landscape now in the Middle East, we seem to be devoid of great leadership. But maybe some uh, more popular movement will, 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 will force leaders to behave in ways that are greater than perhaps their natural tendency might otherwise lead them because I think that the region and the world are tired of this uh, dispute. It's clear uh, Israel is is there to stay. Uh, It's clear that the Palestinians are also there to stay, and therefore some accommodation has to be made. Um, And I think we also all more or less know what the parameters of a settlement are. There's going to be a two-state solution and some accommodation on uh, Jerusalem and on an adjustment of borders. Um, the, the difficulty has not been in get. The difficulty has been in getting to a result that we all know is the solution, and not the solution itself. So hopefully you're right.
0: Perhaps we should chat a little bit about Libya. There again, eighteen months ago, who would have thought there would be this level of
1: fundamental change? Uh, you know that's true. And in fact, if you look at Libya, three years ago, Libya. Was elected by the United Nations General Assembly to the Security Council as a uh, as a rotating member. The former Libyan foreign minister was elected uh, uh, president of the United Nations General Assembly. And Muammar uh, Gaddafi famously two years ago was uh, gave his speech in New York uh, when he was uh, ripping up the Charter and carrying and on and, and <laughs> living in a tent and living in a tent. Uh, somewhere in New York, I think he tried to pitch it in Central Park, as I recall. And here we are. It's uh, it's been a remarkable transformation. Um, and and one other thing I should say: three years ago, they were elected to the uh, Human Rights Council in Geneva. Uh, so what a remarkable transformation uh, it has been. That also was an interesting thing just to to view as as an observer. Um, because a number of things coalesced. For instance, you had the uh, you you happened to have a a leader in the uh, Arab world who had in fact alienated himself from all the other Arab leaders. It was very easy for the Arab League to uh, suspend uh, Libya's uh, participation in the league and to provide a kind of international cover for the United Nations. Uh, it has proven a bit more difficult uh, in the case of Syria. Although that too has now happened, the suspension of Syria's membership in the Arab League, and and also the fact that he had no Qaddafi, uh, that is, had no place to go in the Arab world. Although he might have found a place in Africa, actually, including perhaps in South Africa, uh, had he applied for asylum there, uh, because in the particular case of South Africa, it was that he was a very early supporter of the liberation uh, of the of the anti-apartheid yes. movement in in South Africa, and. Uh, uh, at a time when it had not yet become fashionable to be uh, against the apartheid regime. So uh, it's been a remarkable transformation. And yet you see, again, it took nine months. Uh, I mean, he had forces that were loyal to him. It took NATO bombing with uh, a revolution, truly a revolution. Um, and yet it took still nine months uh, to remove him um, It's always remarkable to me, these sort of dictators who have been there decade after decade after decade, you know, how much is enough? And at one point, uh, does one not say to oneself, as Ben Ali of Tunisia said, let me get out while I can, Mm -hmm. uh, at least to preserve life and limb and myself and my family. It always amazes me that uh, these leaders... They stay on. They do.
0: You know, talking about Libya, I think it's very, very interesting that you now have a project yes, in collaboration with Syracuse University. And Indiana University is really delighted that you have moved in that direction. Tell me more about it.
1: Well, it is a program that uh, is funded by the uh, United States through a grant by the United States Department of State uh, in which my, the center that I'm director of, uh, the Center for the Study of the Middle East and the Center for Constitutional Democracy... Uh, which I'm also affiliated with, are heading up a uh, a project to support the fact-gathering of the uh, United Nations-Libya Inquiry Committee – Commission, rather, the United Nations-Libya Inquiry Commission. Um, We will be gathering uh, records from open sources uh, regarding uh, violations of international human rights law standards. Uh, by all parties in Libya since February 17th of 2011. Uh, The project, um, uh, again, will contribute to the report uh, that is being prepared by the Libya Inquiry Commission uh, with the expectation that the findings of the commission will then be turned over to the uh, International Criminal Court, which you'll recall uh, has uh, a, a Security Council referral to investigate uh, allegations of violations of uh, international criminal law uh, in Libya. So it's a very exciting thing for us to be Does involved Does this
0: include in. interviews? Will, or Will you be doing an analysis of uh, text? We, we
1: will be doing – our part of this is to do an analysis of text. Our partner institution in uh, Siracusa, Italy, will be doing the on-the-ground interviews okay. and so on. Uh, but our our role – and it is uh, the, the three faculty coordinators, uh, My uh, I – and uh, uh, Professor David Williams and Professor Tim Waters at the law school uh, will uh, be doing a textual al- analysis of open sources uh, using uh, about uh, 12 uh, Indiana University students uh, to to it's do the It's a very exciting work. project. It's and extremely. It's exciting. where we
0: should be doing uh, work uh, in terms of real politics and trying to uh, help formulate a future for. Um, resolution of conflicts?
1: I think so. I think that one of the uh, values of having the National Resource Centers, of course, we are at a university and we have to keep uh, academics always, uh, the highest standards of, of academics uh, always uh, uh, throughout everything that we do. But on the other hand, we also, I think, have an opportunity to, uh, to participate, uh, if I may put it in these terms, in the real world. And in fact, to make a difference. And I think when those opportunities present themselves, I think we have uh, an obligation as good citizens to take advantage of them.
0: Do you think Syria is going to go in the same direction that Libya has gone?
1: I don't think there's any doubt about that. And in fact, in an interview with the BBC, the King of Jordan has said that it's time for Bashar Assad uh, to leave.
0: And the Arab countries themselves have now acted. And the, the
1: other Arab, although I'm, I'm disappointed to say that Iraq uh, abstained from the vote to uh, suspend Syria's uh, membership in the Arab League. Look, you cannot, in, in this age, in the information age, you cannot, in my opinion, uh, rule in the same old ways. Uh, you, the, the sort of thuggery, uh, this uh, sort of cracking a few skulls open and uh, dissuading people uh, from coming out into the streets, those days I think are over. Uh, this is not a long-term survival strategy. Um, Bahrain, for instance, which erupted uh, as you'll recall in, in in some violence as well, uh, that seems to have been quelled for the moment. And I stress the word for the moment. Again, people who took to the streets demanding reform in Syria and in Bahrain, when they were met with violence only then change the agenda to regime change. That is, therefore, this sort of response as Gaddafi demonstrated, as the Syrian regime is demonstrating, as the Bahraini government demonstrated, these are not long-term survival strategies. It may take uh, more than seven, eight, nine months. But in the long run, these regimes will collapse.
0: Do you think King Abdullah of Jordan is feeling a little nervous with all that's going on around him?
1: Well, you know, there have been demonstrations in Jordan as well, uh, although, again, the, uh, the demonstrations have been for reform. It's going to depend on uh, – I, I have no doubt that th- there, there is some uh, nervousness on his part, but I think that uh, uh, he also uh, is uh, attempting to engage in a process of reform uh, to the extent that he succeeds. I again hope for uh, the long term survival of the regime in in Jordan. It has been, uh, the monarchy in Jordan has been a force for good. Uh, And it has prevented uh, Jordan from going down the road of some of its uh, neighbors, including Syria, including Iraq, uh, and uh, Saudi Arabia for that matter. It has played a very, very positive role. Uh, There is room for reform. And I think it's time uh, for uh, a a transition to a constitutional monarchy there as well. But I believe that that the Jordanian regime is in in a very good place, uh, that if it enacts appropriate reforms, it will survive as well.
0: Moving perhaps to uh, more of an analysis of a world that you're very familiar with, and that is Iraq. Yes. How did you become an ambassador to the United Nations for Iraq. How did this come about?
1: Well, uh, I had been involved uh, for a period of uh, some six or seven years in the Iraqi opposition to the previous regime in Iraq uh, prior to 2003. And I had worked for a man named Adnan Pachachi, who ultimately in 2003 became a member of the uh, governing – Iraqi Governing Council presidency. He has been described uh, as the most liberal member of the uh, of the, uh, Iraqi Governing Council, and indeed he, he was. Uh, but in any event, um, I had worked with him, uh, eventually becoming his uh, advisor on constitutional and legal reforms. And uh, then as the first group of ambassadors post-regime change were nominated and appointed – uh, I was uh, nominated and, uh, uh, and appointed, thanks to him, in fact.
0: So you came from a law practice in northern Indiana. I did. To the United Nations. Yes.
1: What was the work like? At the UN, well, it's actually extremely interesting. And uh, from an Iraqi perspective, it was very frustrating because uh, Iraq was a founding member of the United Nations. Um, we're a founding member of the Arab League. We're a founding member of a number of, of international and intergovernmental organizations. And yet here we were the object of something like when I arrived 78 or 79 United Nations Security Council resolutions. I think South Africa was the sec- had the second highest number of resolutions after us. So uh, the most important agenda item facing us was to um, work ourselves out of the uh, very uh, detailed set of legal obligations that had been imposed on us over the decades since 1990 uh, by the United Nations Security Council, which left us relatively unable to deal with the larger issues uh, that other delegations could deal with routinely. And again, as a founding member of the United Nations, that was extremely frustrating. But we simply did not have the resources. We did not have the clout, frankly. uh, And we didn't have um, the physical ability to to engage in the larger issues, uh, not only regional issues but larger issues, for instance – there was then and there still is now a convention on terrorism, which was going nowhere. We really didn't have the resources to to have an input uh, into that process because we were so busy dealing with our own immediate problems. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it was extremely frustrating. But good heavens to have had a front row seat to, the, to all the world's uh, the issues. It was for me personally just extraordinary to be there.
0: I'm looking at where we are in 2011. The United States and allies have put enormous resources, loss of life, into Iraq and also into Afghanistan. Has it been worth it?
1: Uh, on the issue of was it worth it, uh, there's a story, perhaps apocryphal, uh, of somebody asking and Lai about his views on the French Revolution and. Supposedly, him having responded that it was uh, too early to tell. So, I don't know. You know, I mean, you, the, the economic resources are one thing, but the loss of life, whether the uh, six figure loss of life of Iraqis uh, or the uh, not quite 5,000 Americans' lives lost, um, you know, how does one assess that? I must say uh, at this precise moment, there is reason to be skeptical about whether uh, all of that was worth it. We are rid of a heinous regime in Afghanistan and an equally or more heinous regime in Iraq. Uh, but we are a very, very long way in either of those two countries. We're a very, very long way from constitutional uh, democracy. We're a very long way from uh, decent governance in either of those two countries. Uh, one might even say that in both countries uh, the concept of uh, constitutionalism and decency and governance has aborted. It's a very difficult thing to assess positively at this moment other than to say we are rid of two tyrannical regimes and that is a good thing in itself.
0: I recently read about Iran in Iraq, because here are two predominantly Shiite countries. Yes, and the possibility of some kind of alliance, interrelationship between these two countries, is always possible. This well, must be pretty disconcerting for the U.S.
1: It it should be, and particularly because the U.S. played a uh, a very large role in handing uh, power to the political elites in Iraq who were most closely allied with Iran uh, in what surely must have been a blunder of huge proportions, we should be very clear that the that the mass of Shia in Iraq, first of all, are Iraqis um, of Arab descent, which of course the Iranians are not, the no. number of Shia in Iraq, who are of Iranian descent, are relatively small, about 10 percent or so, although my my father's family happens originally to be one of them, although we've been in Iraq for centuries. So the loyalty of Iraq's Shia, the broad mass of Shia, is clearly to the state of Iraq, which they proved in eight years of cruel warfare with Iran. Iran.
0: Uh,
1: But unfortunately, the uh, Shia religious parties in Iraq have – many of whom spent uh, their exile in Iran – have very close connections with Iran, which we're now seeing uh, as the Arab states on the one hand are uh, sort of ostracizing Syria, whose sole ally in the region is Iran, and we see uh, the Iraqi government – Uh, allying itself again with the Syrian government on the side of – with Iran rather than with the other Arab states. Exactly.
0: Of course, Iran itself is in transition.
1: Yes. And I am not sure
0: where President Ahmadinejad comes down, whether he is, as some people maintain, a reformist who is aware of the theocratic intervention and the need to move beyond it or whether, in fact, he is to be seen as one of the empire of evil.
1: Yes, well, perhaps an an infelicitous phrase at the time. (laughs) uh, But there's clearly a tussle uh, between Ahmadinejad and the The uh, clerical establishment, in particular, the Ayatollah Khamenei. Um, I'm not sure I would go so far. I mean, so in that sense, you can call him a reformer. I think the sort of true moment of reform from within however, was not uh, Ahmadinejad, but his predecessor, uh, Khatami. And unfortunately, that moment passed without uh, adequate uh, support, perhaps from the West, uh, to get us into genuine reform. Uh, of course, uh, we had the uh, problems of, in Iran as well of uh, a mass uprising, which to date has been successfully uh, suppressed. But again, I will say that I think in the long run, perhaps even in the intermediate run, uh, you cannot suppress a mass uh, movement of people indefinitely. Uh, And I think that the, uh, the writing is there on the wall, even for the Iranian regime. Although, again, I should stress that it is an organic process within the country being led by Iranians.
0: This has been a very interesting discussion. Let me ask one final personal question. Now, your mother specializes on Shakespeare. Yes. And so you grew up listening to your mother talking about Shakespeare's tragedies and comedies.
1: Indeed. I, 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 I first, the first time I saw Hamlet, I, I must have been about six years old in Baghdad in, in Arabic translation. And, and we began with a quote
0: from Shakespeare, which you announced earlier on in the program. So what has Shakespeare done for you as a diplomat, as a teacher, and as an, a
1: political analyst? I mean, I find that... Uh, because he did fall uh, trippingly off my mother's tongue uh, i uh, tend to sort of pepper my talks very often with with quotations but you know it really is true that he was a remarkable observer of the of power, of power and how power works uh, devotees of the Earl of Oxford, notwithstanding, I just saw the film, which I regard as pure entertainment. Mm-hmm. It really is an interest. I mean, he, he was a remarkably astute observer of power and transcends uh, cultures and obviously time. We're still talking of him 400 years more or less after his death and cultures. I mean, uh, my mother's field of expertise uh, specifically was is the translation of Shakespeare into Arabic. Uh, and he's been translated into all the major languages of the world. He obviously speaks to all cultures. There's a timeless and uh, transcendent quality to him uh, that has been, uh, that is obviously well known, but has been remarkable for me also to observe.
0: Well, of course, as I think of everyone from King Lear to Macbeth and to Richard and to Julius Caesar, yes. I see messages for so many of the Arab <laughs> leaders.
1: Well, indeed, the winter of discontent <laughs> yes. indeed has led to the Arab Spring, I suppose. I'm delighted you've chosen something
0: indigenous to the region for your final musical choice.
1: I have. And this is uh, rather interesting. It is a uh, improvisational, actually. It is a form of classical Baghdadi uh, music, uh, which is being revived in the last uh, few decades, 20 or 30 years, uh, the instrumental form as opposed to having the, the, the oud uh, being only an, accompan- an instrument of accompaniment. But it is in the form of classical improvisation. It sort of shares that in common with, with modern jazz. Uh, but it's a form which survives from uh, about a thousand years ago from Abbasid times in Baghdad. And uh, this is a father and son playing playing the Oud, uh, Munir and Omar Bashir. Well, thank you, Faisal. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much. Our
0: guest today has been Ambassador Faisal Istrabadi. This is Patrick O'Meara for Profiles. Thank you for listening.
2: Thank you. program you just heard was recorded in November of 2011. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Pascash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922. With residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville. Local pride. Global technology. Information at smithville.net.